0: Albert and Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio. The former beat reporter for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review and author of Big Data Baseball. He's a current and very prolific contributor to Fangraphs.com. It's Travis Sochick. Travis Sochick is the guest in this edition of the program, as he did in his debut appearance Travis Sachuk here allows us to peer into his beautiful mind as he discusses the pastime of particular note. In this particular case, Rich Hill as a model for failure and how Hill only became truly great when he had nothing left to lose. I also task Sachuk with a thankless challenge when I ask him to innovate On Demand, Sacek wrote a piece at the end of last week entitled How Teams Can Better Innovate, in which he considered what sort of person from what sort of background might add a sort of intellectual diversity to baseball's front offices. I compel Sacek to draw that thought out to its logical, perhaps absurd, conclusion. Is Sacek enthusiastic about that particular task? Sort of. Wherever
1: you're about to take me, (laughs) I'm sure it's going to be quite unpleasant, but I'm willing to go
0: that amusing interval, and others like it and what's to follow? What's following right now, what's occurring right now, is a brief reminder, a brief reminder that Fangraph's readers have an opportunity. What that opportunity is, is to view Fangraphs.com without being plagued, without being burdened by advertisements for the cost of an obscenely overpriced cup of coffee one can acquire an ad-free membership to Fangraphs.com not only will you not be confronted by advertisements but you will also enjoy faster load speeds faster than you can imagine if your imagination is quite poor would you like to learn more click on the link at the post for this episode of Fangraphs Audio with which we move to our conversation what is it it is Fangraphs Audio who does it feature prolific contributor Travis Sacek when does it begin
1: Right now are some sort of parents. I hope I'm not one of them. But yeah, I think more often than not the child is maybe experiencing who knows, pressure change or something is unpleasant and they mm-hmm. can't communicate. Uh yeah, there's just not much we can Anyone can really do about that now. Some people on flights have been great, uh, mm-hmm. very compassionate and understanding. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's that's one skill I've acquired uh, in, in my route to becoming an expert of myself or something, something along those lines.
0: I want to start off uh, the way that I've started off uh, many of my relationships. Uh Travis, and that is to by apologizing to you. Okay? I wanna to apologize to you for what's about to happen because I it's an experiment and I think it's an experiment that's gonna go poorly. Okay? <laughs> All right. But I think probably most experiments uh do not have the intended consequences. Or the intended outcomes. Right. That's right, right right? You you experiment, and you say, I wonder if this would happen and then the answer is usually no. Yeah, I mean it took
1: Edison like ten thousand attempts to create a light bulb, right? Something like that?
0: Yeah. And uh it took him even longer to create the vaccine for polio.
1: So yeah, I don't expect that we'll whatever you're about to uh, <laughs> you're about to take me, I'm sure it's gonna be quite unpleasant. But I'm willing to
0: go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad you feel that way. Yeah. But what, where you are here, we are here to produce content. That's one of our requirements. But in the in with a view to Producing that content, I would like to ask you questions about innovation, okay? Innovation for players and innovation more broadly in baseball front offices, okay? Now, you have some expertise in this area. You've been able to study no fewer than one uh, (laughs) organization, one front office, with some degree of uh, intimacy, precision. I think that's fair. Yeah, that's fair to yeah. say. Okay. So your expertise will be helpful in this. And then we're also going to be looking at another sort of expertise, I think, which is the, uh, your expertise in in um, being Travis Sochick. So that's going to, going to benefit from two, two sorts of expertise. I want to start with a post that you wrote recently. I think it was earlier this week, but perhaps it was last week. Really, it doesn't matter. You've written it, and it's a, and it's a, it was a good piece, and it was about Rich Hill. And Rich Hill as a model for failure. This is very compelling to me. But I would wonder if, I would hope you, you could, um, would you recite how Rich Hill, how Rich Hill made a transition from becoming a, a pitcher with a, maybe a more normal repertoire, more normal usage patterns, to one who uh, began throwing his curveball something like, what it's over 40% of right. the time,
1: right? Yeah. I think it was like 49%. So it was, it's almost a coin flip, fastball, right. curveball, right?
0: Okay, right, yeah, and yeah. in certain situations, certain unexpected situations, he throws it over 50%. Right,
1: yeah. Uh, well, Hill's a fascinating guy for a number of reasons, and uh, part of that post that I wrote, I think it was last week, was, uh, and I was not the first person to... Uh, I didn't report this story. I just found it interesting. But the that he met, I believe, is Brian Bannister uh, when he when Hill was making this minor league comeback attempt after his career had fizzled out, and he uh, I think it was after his is before he went to independent ball. I think that's beside the point, though. He had this conversation with uh, Bannister, and uh, he suggested, "Hey, you know, th- your curveball is a great pitch. Uh, why don't you use it?" In more situations. Why don't you use it in unconventional ways? It's an, not a conventional curveball. It's a, it's a great curveball. Make it your primary pitch and not your secondary pitch. And, of course, I think every pitcher is told that fastball command is key. Fastball has to set up your other offerings. The fastball is the primary pitch for almost every pitcher, even pitchers who lack great fastballs or throw far below the league average uh, velocity for fastballs. So, uh that Hill had this conversation and he hadn't I suppose he hadn't really thought about going against convention as much as he had up until that point or maybe he hadn't felt comfortable uh to go against convention until an authority in the industry had suggested it to him but he did end up using the curve as we've seen him make this remarkable uh return and, and come back to major leagues he's use that curveball. Uh, he's become one of the better pitchers per inning because of the curveball, and he's thrown it when batters are ahead in counts, which most pitchers do not lean on the pitch then. He's thrown it on almost every occasion, uh, and he throws it more often than I think every ma- any major league starting pitcher. So, he, I mean, a lot of things explain how Hill went from uh, being almost, having his career almost uh end to where he is now as a a uh, top of the rotation guy, but that is, uh, and I think we can learn a lot from the the process of him failing and coming back from failure. But uh, yeah, I think that that conversation was important to explain where Hill is where he is today.
0: Right, and it's important, I suppose, for a number of reasons. But one is it came. So it's interesting to us because it's it's it appears to be based to some degree on analytics. A, it appears to be based um, in some degree on a willingness to embrace the unconventional, which I think is one of the reasons that um, you and, and I are interested in the field of baseball analytics. And it's probably also interesting, right, in the fact that it was delivered, the message was delivered by in Brian Bannister by someone who, despite having, in, who played the level played the game at a high level, and also has a certain willingness to entertain uh, the unconventional.
1: Yeah, I think I agree with you on all those uh, all those points, and uh, maybe that's one reason so many people in the sabermetric side of baseball journalism have uh, been interested, fascinated with the Rich Hill story because he does embody the... Uh, The analytic spirit of the game and the movement, and he, a lot of analytic-minded people, are champion championing him as a undervalued free agent the last or last winter, and even this winter. Some people, I guess, think he's still undervalued. Uh, And then, yes, we always want to combat conventional wisdom and convention where it might be the wrong philosophy, or, or it's being used errantly, or just. Flat out wrong. So, yeah, I think all these things come together in the Rich Hill story, which makes him a you know, one of the more interesting people uh, in baseball right now. And and then Bannister, uh, the communication aspect too is important. And I think, as Dave Cameron wrote about this week in a post, that's maybe the great market inefficiency right now in baseball is communication. Do you have the right kind of connectors of people in an organization? To communicate ideas, to to get the most out of players, uh, to create that, uh, I would call that a collaborative relationship they had. Do you have the right people to to make that happen? To produce, to try new things, to experiment, to add value. So Hill embodies a lot of things that I think are important right now,
0: uh, in baseball. And here's a, here's another compelling aspect of of this uh, this story. It is. It's because it's a, it, everyone wins from it, right? the The Red Sox, well, the Red Sox only got four four uh, starts out of it, I think, but um, certainly Oakland uh, Oakland benefited from it, right? Right. To the degree that they benefited from anything last year, and the Dodgers were able to benefit from it eventually, right? Um. In in any in any instance in which a pitcher is um, at, at one point is employed in an, by an independent league and then the next is employed and uh, holding his own in the major leagues and then in the next after that is flourishing in the major leagues, you have to say that something unexpected has happened. Absolutely. There are v- very few cases in which in which that happens. And here's what's great about it is is everyone wins because um, probably the Red Sox and A's and Dodgers all benefited from... Having a player who was definitely outperforming uh, you know what uh, his salary w- would dictate he would be how his salary would dictate he'd be performing. and Rich Hill benefits from it because he now uh, he has earned enough money from his most recent contract to do I mean he, he could do whatever he wants for the rest of his life and and for the rest of his kid's life. I mean it's essentially he is a wealthy person. he is not hurting for resources at this point.
1: He certainly is not, and uh, we saw him at the. Well, he was in the interview room at the winter meeting. The winter meetings, the big lobby or the big ballroom they have, uh, and he was emotional when talking about his contract. I think because he had been through so much failure and all these things had come together, and uh, he's the big winner in this. But the Dodgers are benefiting. The A's benefited, and maybe. The Red Sox should have benefited more from taking a chance on this guy and helping him. Uh it, it is sort of interesting to me that with so much money in the game, teams aren't willing to make more of a a wager on high-risk reward guys like Hill. But to your point, there are a lot of winners in this story, Uh Hill being the, the most obvious winner with a three-year $48 million deal. I believe that. I think it's three forty eight.
0: Yeah, A lot, a, really a lot of money. In. A lot of money, yeah. Now, this obviously this is a the the, the story by Hill. Your post about Hill and how failure essentially is what made him a success. His willingness to uh, embrace his failure and accept it and um, essentially use it be, because he had he benefited from having nothing left to lose. I think at some level, right? He was a, he was in his mid thirties. He ba- he barely threw ninety miles per hour. So, of course, he was going to be open to suggestions when they were made to him.
1: Right. Yeah. And uh, I'm also in, what would a, what would Hill wish he could have told his younger self today? I mean, we all. Oh, that was a great uh, point you made in your in your piece. Uh, I, I think that'd be really interesting to know. I mean, we all wisdom is something that you can't. Uh, there's no shortcut to wisdom. You gain it through experience for the most part. So I and part of this is maybe an impossibility, but. He can't speak to his younger self, but he could speak to younger people, younger players. And what younger pitchers, the next young, the next Rich Hill, the next guy with the big curveball that fails and almost loses his career, maybe what he should be thinking about is when he, instead of being 35 and maybe being 28, is thinking about uh, what are my strengths, what are my skills? Should I be uh, using, the, using this pitch more frequently in this situation? Should I be training in a different manner? But I do think that idea of what could he tell – what would what he wish he could impart upon a younger version of himself is really interesting. And that's what I would hope a younger pitcher athlete who might read that story or know the Hill experience take from it.
0: Well, it's interesting that you say that too. All right. So a couple of things. Actually, my neighbor – this is not a very common occurrence uh, when you live in Maine. But my neighbor pitched for Florida State. He, oh, was wow. on the same, yeah, he was on the same team as Sherman Johnson, one of my favorite players uh, <laughs> in all of baseball. I think he was also on the same, uh, same team maybe as Buster Posey. But I'm less oh, interested wow. in that than having been on the same club as Sherman Johnson. That's what's most interesting wow. to me. <laughs> um, I was talking to him yesterday because we were both shoveling. And I said, what? What are you going to say?
1: Oh, how close are you? What sort of acreage do you live on?
0: Acreage, we, we are in the decimals. <laughs> we're, we're, dealing, we're, we're dealing with decimal points. Uh, so you when are we're,
1: in a, you're in a community of, what, single-family homes that are in close proximity to one in another, like a, a subdivision? Semi-detached houses. Okay.
0: okay. So by, by, what are they also called? By, by, by. They're called semi-detached. They're mm. also called. Uh, this is this is not gold right here in terms of. Eh, boo, 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 boo. It's we share we share a wall. There's a party oh, yeah, wall. Yeah. It's you understand uh, what uh, I'm saying? I, yeah, I understand. Apparently, it's also called a semi-D in England, it's, which it's I guess semi-D. A, a semi-D, which is different than an easy D, which <laughs> is um, a phrase utilized by our president recently. But let's. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. The um, I live in a semi attached so yes, the 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 houses are intimately are uh, in intimate proximity, close proximity. He so, lives across the street.
1: Okay, how does a duplex differ from a semi attached
0: Okay, that's exactly the word I was looking for. A duplex is the same thing. Oh, okay, yeah, it's similar, similar or the same.
1: Interesting. I'm sorry to divert the conversation. I was no, no, re- that's
0: fine. you you're, you're I, that's very good. I'm I'm glad you're. Yes, it's called a duplex as well.
1: Yeah, Maine fascinates me. It's up in the far corner of the mainland forty-eight, and it's, I I just wonder what the life is like there. So, very fascinated by Maine.
0: If you if you don't mind, I might I might uh, put a stop to this brief digression. Hey, <laughs> that that is perfectly fine. Okay, all right. Because I because I would like to tell you about my neighbor, who I said pitcher of Florida State. Right,
1: he I was, rude, I rudely interrupted your story. Yeah,
0: you did. Yeah, it was yeah. rude. But yeah. he so he's thirty years old now, right? And I and I I, I had just uh, been asking about his stuff. I said, so did you, what did you throw? And he said he threw a two seam fastball. He threw a slider. He threw a changeup. He also mentioned, for example, that he threw, um, that he threw with a lower arm slot. And so I was curious. I said. Well, how did that affect your changeup? Because frequently, uh, pitchers who have lower arm slots, uh, they're not, they probably will not get as much fade. Yeah. On their changeup, it might have more depth. And he said, yeah, I had more depth. It was more of a, of a sinking action on his changeup. So we were discussing some of those things. I said, um, and he was saying how sometimes he was able to hit 92, but other times he was sitting 84 to 88. And I said, what are the differences? He said, well, it was all mechanical. He said, and I knew when I was doing a good job, but I didn't always have it. And he said, now, looking back on it, he said, it's so obvious to me when I wasn't bitching well, it's so obvious to me now what was wrong. And I wish I could tell... He said, literally, he said, I wish I could tell myself what was wrong, but I can't. Yeah, Yeah. Now, here's the thing. There are many aspects of life that are clear to a 30-year-old that are not clear to a 20-year-old, right? Very true. Yeah. I'm not suggesting that 30-year-old people are superior. I am suggesting, however, that your brain is fundamentally different, and I can speak from personal experience. My brain is fundamentally different now than when I was 20 years old. I I do seem – there. I, I think I just recognize patterns a little bit more, whereas when I pitched, for example, in high school – I did not even know that a changeup is the sort of pitch that you would use to get opposite-handed batters. And that's only in the realm of pitching. That has nothing to do with the rest of life.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, there's no wisdom. There's something you pick up to experience. And I'm sure we would all love to go back and speak to our 20-year-old, 18-year-old selves and make some uh, suggestions for consideration.
0: But here's the point, though, and and I don't know if you've experienced this as a parent yet. Although my guess is you will almost definitely experience this as a parent, is explaining to someone that they ought to improve in a particular way is much different than that same individual, that same twenty year old, for example, ex- experiencing on a visceral level the necessary ingredients for that change up for that change. And so, what you really so it's not so much Rich Hill going back and talk to his former self; it's Rich Hill somehow imparting on that former self the wisdom, that that wisdom, or maybe the willingness to experiment, or uh, some other sort of thing. So, what essentially what you're asking to do is to impart a level of the the conditions that is. 30 year old or 35 year old experiences naturally to impart those onto a 20 year old
1: yeah no it's really it's interesting and how, how do you do it it's a great question and maybe we need more Brian Bannisters in the world we need better connectors of you need uh, people with authority that can make that change or help that player who hasn't considered it. Or might be considering it, considering it, but is fearful or uh, is fearful of failing, trying to mm-hmm. execute that change. Maybe uh, it's not so much the idea of going back and imparting wisdom or this knowledge on a, on a younger self. It's Rich Hill needed Brian Bannister ten years ago, uh, but he didn't meet him until he was thirty-four.
0: And here's the, we talked about some of the conditions that were necessary for Rich Hill to accept the advice. One of them was, and I think one of the biggest factors was that Rich Hill had nothing to lose, right? Whereas Rich Hill at age 20 and age 25 had a lot to lose because he was a prospect. He was a prospect, I think, first, he was in the cup system, was he not?
1: Right, yeah, he... He was a pretty highly regarded prospect, I believe, and he he still had the big curveball, and that's what I remember. I remember twenty something Rich Hill with the big curveball, being very inconsistent, very thin, and pitching for a very bad Cubs team. I think is my earliest recollections of Rich Hill.
0: Right, and I think that we can. I think you could you could say that uh, there there is a possibility that Rich Hill at the age of twenty five would not be as open to. A an unconventional solution, an unconventional strategy, as the thirty-five-year-old version.
1: Yeah, no, I mean that's as you pointed out, the the actual structure of uh, material matter of the brain changes. Perhaps a twenty-five-year-old richill is not capable uh, of absorbing the information and change of being aware uh, and motivated to to make these changes. And motivation wasn't the same. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of Interesting things going on, uh, going on with Rich Hill, and could this have happened earlier? Or was it a, it needed the time and information to only happen at this point later in his career?
0: Right. Unless you could somehow, unless you could somehow find a way to simulate the conditions of being a 35 year old person for a younger player.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm all ears if you have a an idea on how to do that.
0: <laughs> I don't necessarily, but uh, I mean, well, not one that's substantiated. I do think that what a 35 year old person understands that a 20 year old doesn't is is that failure is inevitable. And it's I think my guess is if you're a 20 year old pitcher who's done nothing but succeed, that that's harder to understand. You know,
1: yeah, undoubtedly. Uh,
0: so I think you have to have a a person. Who has reached a point where he, in the case of baseball, where he is willing to listen because um, because he that's he has no he's no no viable alternative. Yeah,
1: it's a natural uh, course of human experience, decision making. Maybe mm-hmm. uh, I mean, the, the one other variable is that uh, early in. I think PitchFX was online everywhere in 2008, or maybe at the end of 07, and it probably wasn't a huge part of Clubhouses or individual player. Uh, individual players probably were not using it most of them as a tool in the late 2000s uh, when Hill was first coming up to the to the majors. So now he's he was using analytics. He was using using tools. He was understanding how to match up spin rate on his fastball curveball, and how to make those uh, pitches look more similar. But those tools weren't available as they are today, or at least widely or widely accepted and known then. So he also had uh, his objective data today he didn't have when he was younger. But even beyond that, I, yeah, I still think it's really interesting. Could you simulate the 35-year-old experience on a 25-year-old? That's probably really hard to do.
0: Now let's let's move on to uh, your post for today regarding innovation and how teams might better cultivate it um, within, you know, internally. I guess um, you uh, you are the you're standing on the shoulders of a couple giants here. One of them is Ben Lindbergh, who actually. It physically is not a giant, uh, but we could say that he's written a uh, thought-provoking piece, right, regarding the, um, regarding secrets essentially in Major League Baseball and how it's harder for I don't know if it's harder it's hard for clubs to keep those secrets because there's uh, relatively fluid movement between organizations among analysts.
1: Right. Yeah. Excellent piece. Uh, the Ringer estimates it takes fifteen minutes to read, so go find fifteen minutes and. And read it because it's a yeah. yeah, great piece.
0: Go ahead and do it. And Dave Cameron uh, wrote uh, built off that and um, looking at the devaluation of ideas, essentially saying that a team can a team because a team is uh, not going to secure an inefficiency for that long, that their incentive for investing in it is is uh, minimized.
1: Yeah, I think we've seen the. Yeah, another outstanding read, and I think that's true. the The shelf life of ideas is really sh- they're really short. If there's a best practice or a, a new idea, what uh, teams are going to copy it? They're going to adopt it as quickly as possible. Uh, so yeah, it's it's really hard. T- there's nothing like the Coca-Cola recipe you can keep and hide uh, internally and keep using it to great success. Uh, things are stolen, copied, and uh, they quickly expire, and as an organization you have to go find the next thing, and it's this kind of circular challenge, I guess, where you're always in this race for the next thing, and when you find it, everyone's copying it.
0: Uh, right, and I think probably pitch framing is um, one of the most notable um, examples of that, right, where I th- you, you hypothesize, Lindbergh hypothesized that maybe pitch framing, the the idea of of acting on it, in a way of acquiring players who possessed it, would probably begin with the the Yankees in the 2000s sometime. Yeah,
1: yeah I think so. And Lindbergh, I think, was there. Uh, as a, he was an intern, I believe, or he okay. he was in the front office in some capacity. And he, uh, yeah, the Yankees were into were very interested in pitch framing. They acquired players with that skill in the late 2000s. Uh, and no one else seemed. And it seemed like in the outside, the the hobbyists investigating this, the the great framing discoveries were made 2008-ish, right when the pitch effects data was being scraped and toyed around with. So I guess that would make some sense. The the Yankees and outside hobbyists were coming to this realization in the late 2000s. So I think we have the time frame correct and the team correct.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, that's fine. I mean, the, the the details ultimately are not particularly essential. Now, you seem to respond to Lindbergh slash Cameron with a sense that even though there is that the, these edges, these minor edges, these advantages, they they do evaporate. You see, there you, in your opinion, there is still room for innovation. And I was wondering if you might uh, articulate that for for my sake, for the sake of listeners, where you see that occurring.
1: Yeah, no, I... And in the piece, yeah, I, I agree that the idea is there's a shorter shelf life and it's hard to keep secrets. But I also, I would like to believe that there's more undiscovered that's been discovered, uh, just kind of in general about the universe, but also <laughs> about, about baseball. So I would like to think there's still a lot to learn, to know, to better understand about the game. Uh, I mean, even today I was on Twitter, I'm arguing with CJ Nikowski about framing metrics and how how perfect or imperfect they are. So there's still debate upon that, even though I think it's generally accepted that it is some level of skill the catcher uh, possesses. But, yeah, I'd like to believe there's more unknown, the known, and even though ideas are easily uh, copied, uh, and it's hard to keep secrets, I still think teams should be striving to find the next the next thing, the next big thing, or even the next small thing, because even having that for a short period of time creates something of an advantage. And if you find a, a big thing that's hard to, uh, I think I used the word, mobilize to capture, Maybe you have a three to five year head start on the industry. Something uh, hypothetically, if a team found a better way to prevent injuries, uh, and it put it needed infrastructure and training, it would have a it would have a head start over multiple years upon another organization. So, uh, even though I'm sure it's deflating for teams who believe they've discovered something like framing and then to see it copied within five years, uh, I still think teams should there should always be a focus on actively researching and finding things. And teams are employing a lot of people to research and discover things. So, yeah, I I still, uh, I believe there's a value in the idea. Uh, now Cameron argued that the implementation is perhaps more important today. And that goes into communication. And I think that's really, you know, I, I wrote a book in part about that, how communication is, uh, so important in an organization and an idea is worthless without implementation but yeah i i do think uh there's plenty of ideas to be discovered and and perhaps there's more efficient better ways to go about discovering them
0: and i think that you uh, if i if i'm understanding correctly you think that maybe by altering some of their hiring practices by entertaining contributions from Individuals who work in different industries, who haven't just come from baseball itself, or or what's become more typical, uh, who haven't uh, you know acquired a master's degree in something like business or economics or stats or or whatever or computer science, I guess, essentially, which would uh, enable one to build a sort of uh, a, a broad system um, that, that there might be some advantage to be found there.
1: Yeah. Uh, no, I think there, there probably is. And, uh, I was looking at some of the comments on that story, uh, on that post and some reader pointed out that, uh, you know, no two, even if a lot of people are entering the industry through similar, uh, Having similar resumes and skill sets, no two persons' experiences are the same, and and I understand that, and that that's undoubtedly undoubtedly true. But at the same time, it seems to me that almost the, the vast majority entering for offices today are entering with a some sort of degree in, as you mentioned, hard sci- or uh, economics, computer science, business. Uh, all the field staff, all the coaches are almost exclusively ex-players, and the majority should probably be ex-players. You're trying to teach skills. But they're very <coughs> they're very similar paths to the front office, to the field staff. And I don't know if you've – have you read Walter Isaacson's book, The The Innovators? No, I haven't. Uh, I loved it. It was a great read, and it's really looking at some of the – Uh, great computer and and tech companies, Silicon Valley. It it looks at the collaboration process within some of those companies. Uh, And he he cites the Bell Labs, uh, kind of a a precursor to some of those. And the collaboration that uh, evolved there and what was interesting and fascinating about Bell Labs and some of the other companies uh, was the different sorts of people that would be working on projects together. They had different backgrounds, different skill sets, and uh, that diversity, combined with the collaboration, I think uh, his, his point is that's where creativity, that's where ideas come from. When you start intersecting different groups of people, with different backgrounds, different experiences, that's where new ideas generate, and my hypothesis is there's not enough of, baseball's front offices are not Uh, diverse enough, and there, uh, there isn't that sort of collaboration and intersection of different backgrounds and skill sets to produce as many ideas that are, uh, that possibly could be created. And that's not to say there aren't a bunch of really smart people working in front offices, because we all know there are, and there's dozens upon dozens of interns and, uh, front office staffers that are brilliant and could be making more money in, in Wall Street or somewhere else. But it also seems like everyone has the same resume. So what would happen if a team plucked some people from different fields and got everyone in a room together and had conversation? And I don't know. It'd be interesting. Uh, maybe teams are doing this more than I'm aware of, but it, just from my own experience, it seems like they're very uh, similar tracks <coughs> to the front office.
0: Well, I... I um I asked a question via a uh, social media platform, Twitter, of um, just generally, you know, these are not necessarily going to be people who have an intimate awareness of of um, the sort of research that's going on in analytics, with analytics teams in the majors, or, you know, among baseball uh, organizations. But I said something to the effect of, you know, what fields or disciplines or areas of expertise do you think might be represented or underrepresented in front offices, and uh, could also benefit those front offices? Now, some people mentioned right away um, th- uh, that probably uh, women wi- women <laughs> would be. I don't know, but that's of course now that is a uh, um, that is a the sex of somebody, um, and therefore it's a different sort of uh, marker. I'm not denying it. I right. think probably yeah. there would be some sense, and I think there probably. Um, a number of other sort of um, uh, markers that relate simply to identity, which give people a different life experience anyway, right? Right. Which, so that I think that that, that probably makes sense. <clears throat> um, but I think also if we're not – if we're looking at, at um, other sort of um, uh, defining characteristics besides, uh, besides identity um, – I, the, there were there were some suggestions to that effect as well, uh, and in a number of them, that both amused me and and which I think it was it was sort of in the spirit of the the question I was asking were provided by a, um, a user slash reader named Aldlandia Aldland <laughs> Aldland um, who suggests we'll I'll refer to him as he because that'll be easier for the moment might not be a he but I'll refer to her, Aldland as he. He suggests um, psychology, uh, holistic health training, or yoga. A comically stereotypical uh, Charlie Chaplin-like person, like maybe like Friar or Tuck, or the guy from Beetle Bailey, or I think like maybe Falstaff uh, from Shakespeare's plays, um, is sort of the person he's looking at. He says maybe a gambling consultant, a social science researcher, someone who who speaks just someone who speaks Spanish. Just anyone who speaks Spanish, a luxury car dealer, um, a European scout, literally Bo Jackson, or a guy who pretends to be one of those, or a guy who pretends to be one of the players but actually is not a player at all, just pretends, just essentially an actor who's just on the field. Um, And that, I think that was the line of inquiry which, uh, while perhaps um, exhibiting some sort of, you know, Divorce from reality is, I think, I think that that's it also that those suggestions, I think, embody maybe the sort of, um, the sort of thought that that, that might excite you the most, or if, if I can be presumptuous for a moment, which is to ask questions or give suggestions that on the face of it appear uh, not to be providing an immediate solution, but also maybe. Call upon certain areas of the brain that fire synapses in certain areas the the brain that are maybe left, um, on, uh, that maybe are not, uh, stimulated, during during a typical, conversation. If the idea is, what are we looking for for this baseball team?
1: Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> I that's one way of putting it. But yeah, a very neuroscience neuroscience way of uh, of defining the issue at hand. But I do think. If you're in a conversation with different people of different backgrounds, it's going to lead you to consider things that you had not considered before or to look at things you know differently. Uh, and I think about my own career and going into newsroom meetings from I would ha- occasionally when I was at the Charleston Post and Courier, I met with our investigative editor and he was uh, he was not a sports journalist and he was telling me about some of the ways he identified some of the projects he was proud of uh, having reported and written. And he talked about this story and how he was researching traffic deaths on I-26 in South Carolina and how he was able to plot geographically where they had all had occurred and they had bunched up in different areas. Uh, and why were these bunches occurring? Because there's, there's no guardrail along the, the highway there, so there probably should be guardrails there, uh, and it was an interesting way of looking at a problem, tackling a problem. I know when I had talked to our Sunday design team about visually how to present a story, uh, a conversation with someone from the art side, the design side, could influence or change the way I was thinking about presenting the story, or I would consider a question uh, that I hadn't thought of before, so I just think when you get people with different backgrounds uh, together, there is some synergy, some magic that can happen and uh, spark some areas of the mind that when you have people with very similar uh, degrees, skill sets, there can be perhaps a, a herd mentality where you're attack, you're attacking the problem from the same direction. Uh, and there there's the known unknowns, and then there's the unknown unknowns and maybe there would be fewer unknown unknowns if you had uh, a more diverse uh
0: leadership team i don't know yeah, yeah right well the i i the i the idea of inserting into a front office someone who is, is conspicuously does not belong there that is very appealing to me. I like the the notion Fire of topic. a false death. What's that? <laughs> yes,
1: that, that, that'd be wonderful. That'd be wonderful.
0: I don't know. Yeah, and I don't necessarily know what the um, what the outcome would be. But for example, I played a little. I played a little game in my head. This this will bring us back to Rich Hill in a moment, but um, w- probably my favorite author to read is an aphorist, uh, who's a dead person now. He's he's an aphorist. He's a dead aphorist. Is what he is. Uh, he wrote aphorisms until he died, and then he has done nothing since then. Um, but his uh, his work lives on, at least for the time being. Uh, his name is Emil Chorin, and uh, he was born in Romania and moved to France. But, for example, there's a, always one of his aphorisms sticks in my mind. He wrote, I get along quite well with someone only when he is at his lowest point and has neither the desire nor the strength to restore his habitual illusions.
1: I read that on the best of Fangraphs, I think, over the over the weekend.
0: Oh, is that right? Okay, yes. Yes. So, right. so you see that this has. Yeah. So when I when when you recited your Rich Hill, said to, I actually didn't even know I had included that. So when you, um, I was very drunk when I wrote that best. <laughs> yeah, which by the way, very if profound. you want to talk, very if profound. you want to talk about sure that is if you want to talk about cross pollinating, I would say we borrow from. Let's see, Herodotus in his histories, he tells a story about a group, a governing body. And let's say it's the Persians. I don't think it was actually the Persians, but for the moment, that's what it is in my head. The Persians, when they were consulting on a bill, essentially, they would either uh, make a decision while sober and then review it while drunk, or they would make a decision while drunk and review it while sober ah and if they if they approved of it whilst um, under the influence and and uh, sober then they said this must be a good idea <laughs> because because we because we we approve of it under both conditions
1: right with some some layers removed and completely sober so right so no.
0: so so advice so if you're looking for innovation in front offices perhaps one, Method would be to uh, agree on a trade while drinking, and then review it while sober, or vice versa. Hey. <laughs> I'm spitballing, yeah, Socek, hey. but I'm just uh, saying.
1: I look, maybe at the winter meetings that happens around the hotel bar. You know, I don't, I don't know, but uh, you know, there, there's much to be learned from the ancients, and yes, the, is. <laughs> that is a inspired practice.
0: Uh, so so possibly so here we have one possibility the installation of a classics professor into or at least a scholar of the class you know just a scholar of the classics into a front office.
1: or someone of just uh, someone how about someone who has an encyclopedic uh, history of the game and who understands uh, who can easily think about past historical uh, examples, lessons, Failure, success, or someone from the classics, but I think when you the cross, yes, cross pollinate. Uh, that's what we're looking for to pollinate
0: in a cross-like fashion. So, yeah, that's I like right. It. It, I like it. It's like if you have a, both a male and a female um, uh, elderberry bush. You know, uh, they will only grow fruit if uh, if you have the male and the female close to each other because the, the there needs to be cross-pollination to to occur yeah. to to grow the berries. I think you you probably knew that. You were going you were going to bring up uh Sambucus racemosa, which of course is the the genus and species of the uh the red the red elderberry. You were about to cite that, I think.
1: Is this a uh native uh, species in Maine?
0: I I think it's pretty I think it's pretty common in at least in the eastern United States. Oh, okay. I don't know precisely, but the elderberry is a lot of fun. I think we all know that. Well,
1: what? But but for the, the Cleveland, for instance, they have hired James Harris. There might already mm-hmm. be some of this going on because the Indians have hired uh, James Harris, uh, who has to run their farm system, and he has he's never played organized baseball. He spent one year last year at the Pirates, which is why I know of him, uh, in a kind of a special assistant role. And before that, he was with. Chip Kelly's Eagles teams, and with Chip Kelly in Oregon, uh, so he's a football guy. But the the Indians are now having this guy with basically very little baseball experience run their farm system, and I think that's really interesting. Uh, and the the Pirates wanted him in part because they believe in this idea of uh, putting a different voice in the room, looking at things through a different lens. Uh, what what does football do better than baseball from a player development perspective? So I think we're seeing some of this begin. I mm-hmm. uh, I suspect we'll see more of it, but I do think it's so. This idea, whether it's a uh, classics professor, whether it's James Harris, uh, yeah, get find people that don't belong in their room and put them there and see what happens.
0: Right, <clears throat> right. Well, and what and so so one like specific idea that uh, I think that Emil Chorin – of which he would approve and which I think Rich Hill is sort of the embodiment of and which I was forced to consider again today when Dave Cameron was discussing Jorge De La Rosa is essentially identifying players, I- identifying players themselves who are very clearly open to, um, to new ideas or new roles. Right. Uh, and still have some skills. Cause I think Jorge De La Rosa himself has said that he's open to pitching and relief.
1: Right. No, that's it's really interesting. Yeah, because Dave pointed out some really interesting uh, statistical measures of his relief performance. And if he's open-minded to doing that, maybe there's a lot of hidden value there uh, that a team can enjoy and extract.
0: There must be, they might be able to, to get a post out of identifying, and I know that Eno Saris just wrote a post on those pitchers who, who had the biggest drop off in strikeout rate from their first time to their third time through the order. Um, so that that they, that list of players might be relevant in this to this particular conversation,
1: right? There's there's maybe some miscast starting pitchers there that should uh, find new homes in the bullpen,
0: right? But somehow finding, so I think probably yeah, in relief, working with relief might be one way of doing it, and you know finding. Pitchers who would be comfortable throwing in roles that um, that other pitchers might not, but but yes, this idea of essentially cobbling together groups a group of players who have nothing left to lose. That especially if you're maybe a rebuilding club or you know you're a club with a low salary, uh, uh, um, with a low payroll.
1: The Padres. You know.
0: <laughs> yeah, the Finders might be, might be a place to begin. I mean, of course, you know, they have a lot of interesting young prospects, but for all, every position in which they don't have a prospect, it might be interesting. Now, for hitters, I don't necessarily know, uh, how you would install it. I guess it's, I guess it's, it would be players who have exhibited some comfort in working in roles that, with which they'd be unfamiliar. So maybe, uh, like Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller, uh, Attend, you know, as they experimented with like a like a five man infield, may, maybe there would be instances where you could you you would have players who'd be very comfortable with unorthodox shifts, to you know to the, to see if they would if right. that would work. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that would if, how that, you could use that or not. But uh see, but anyway, if we that was, had,
1: if we placed you in a front office right now, a mm-hmm. team could be well on its way to a few significant new ideas and practices.
0: Yeah, I think that it probably, um, um, my guess is that, it's, uh, it's, yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's going to happen any moment now. And you'd be. In joking. fact, wait, I got to, I got to call on the other line here. <laughs> and you might be, be.
1: And you would be exploring be. things in a sober state, in a not so sober state. This could be, this could be something.
0: Right. Well, that's the difficulty, right? Is that, um, as we mentioned mentioning, now, you're talking about the hiring of James Harris, right? If you're the pirates and you're saying, who should be in charge of our farm system. Naturally, your first instinct probably is to look at people who have experience dealing with farm systems. Right. But you need someone who has, like, a baseline of competence or understanding to do it because otherwise everything, uh, then you just lose, like, basic organizational qualities.
1: That's true. I mean, there's a balance there where you have yeah. to have, uh, you have to understand the mechanics of baseball. You have, you have to understand the organization uh, and institutional knowledge. But you can... There's probably already a lot of people in an organization that know how to do that and understand those processes. Yeah. Uh, which is... you know, when I, when I spoke to Harris, he said, uh, there's a lot of people that here that know how to coach baseball and understand all the, the baseball side of things. They don't want me here for that. They... <laughs> They want me here for the knowledge I'm bringing from from football and how, a better way to
0: train, a better way to attack problems. So, uh, yeah. You know what? You know, it's not it's not uncommon for um, for universities, for example, to have like a, a writer in residence, for example, where um, you know you there's an author whose work is uh, generally well respected, and this person might be valuable to the community. Um, and so so y- y- you do not offer the person, the individual, a full-time role, but you say come here for a year or come here for a semester. And maybe, maybe the writer would teach a couple classes or hold office hours or just – it would just generally be there with the idea of benefiting the community in a way that might be difficult to measure and yet which intuitively would seem to – Contribute to the, uh, the life of the community, right? So what right. about for front offices? Maybe a proposal would be essentially an analyst in residence. It
1: could be, you could be onto something.
0: And so essentially what you're doing is you're saying here's a person who has exhibited um, ingenuity in another field. And we're just going to pay to have him or her here for a year and see what happens. Hey, I'm on, I'm on board with you, all you these ready for it? I'm, You, I'm you ready, ready for it? I'm ready for it, Yeah. Um, yeah. There is another point, which is maybe teams don't care that much. Do you think that's possible?
1: Uh, I'm sure there's a different degree of interest in caring. But, but I do th- – I mean, it's such a competitive field. Everyone's looking for every edge. Uh, I do think, as your one – I guess the one Twitter comment you received, I think psychology is probably underrepresented uh, in baseball. Uh, what if you could have someone fix uh, John Lester's issues thrown to first base or Pedro Alvarez? Is basically he's in jeopardy of losing a career because he forgot how to throw. He can no longer make the routine throw from third base to first base. So he's slid so far down the defensive spectrum. He's not really valued by the industry, and he's I believe he's still in sign today. Uh, so there's the the yip issues to work through. There's just day to day day to day mental consistency and putting people in a better place on a more consistent basis. What would that do perf- to performance? So I do think uh, the softer sciences, for lack of a better term, are probably underrepresented. Underrepresented, mm-hmm. represented, <laughs> where we all know uh, the level of representation by the math, science, computer science, and not to say they sh- they should be because they're very important and they've produced a ton of value. But this is there's it's a ten billion dollar industry. There's a lot of money being spent and not being spent by owners. So teams could be have the financial capability to – it's not even a zero-sum game. It's not less hard science, more soft science. You could Mm -hmm. still expand your analytics team while adding a completely new department and not have to take away from another department given the amount of money in the game. So it's a really interesting opportunity, I think, for baseball because the resources are so abundant at this time uh, where a a team with a willing ownership group could – could bring in that uh, the, the the temporary professor you spoke of the uh, the the person in the room that
0: doesn't belong there.
1: Uh, I don't know. It's just, a, it's say, just a modest yeah. proposal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying we should eat Irish babies? Is that what I'm getting from you? Uh,
1: it's just a modest proposal.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, that would have been Jonathan Swift's contribution. Mm. Have you guys considered eating babies? <laughs> And the Pirates would say, well,
1: uh, get back? No. Frowned
0: upon. It's generally frowned upon.
1: generally frowned upon, but that's not what I'm suggesting.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're on record as saying that you do not suggest the teams start eating babies. <laughs> yeah. um, now, you know, I
1: could be – maybe teams are doing a lot more than I'm unaware of, and there is a lot more uh, diversity, not so much from a – we know we know there's not a lot of women in front offices, so not, so not those markers, but maybe just there are more different backgrounds that that we're aware of. But I don't I don't think so. And I think it was a Russell Carlington piece at Baseball Prospectus that they mm-hmm. researched that 70% of recent hires have been interns going into front offices, and right. not that there shouldn't be a vibrant internship program, but that seems like baseball's leaning pretty heavily on uh, not just cheap labor to. To fill entry-level roles and to develop, but also again, these are the, a lot of uh, smart kids, Ivy League kids, but similar backgrounds. These aren't English majors. These aren't uh, <laughs> these aren't psychologists. These are these are not artisans. Uh, mm-hmm. These are math people. So that's <coughs> filling almost all these roles, and I I don't know. I think there's some innovation being left behind, but it's just a, say, just a hunch.
0: I will say that. Uh, This might be relevant. Um, Since I've uh, started owning a home, which happened this past summer, my entire estimation of sort of like intrinsic human value has been almost entirely inverted. Um, Of course, I spent a long time uh, going to school and um, I concerned about problems that uh, required uh, you know combination of reason and imagination to solve that that to me not not to say that i performed any of those offices competently but i'm saying those are the things that i valued right uh, the world was the world of ideas right since owning a home i do not care much at all for the world of ideas or i if i do it's muted it's a muted interest um and I am, I've become amazed in the meantime by, for example, my plumber, uh, uh, who's done excellent work in my house. Um, an, another gentleman who came over and replaced some drywall, um, in my ceiling. I think he is a magician. Um, we've recently had over some people who are going to help regrade part of our yard because we have uh, water going up against the foundation. These are all people with real skills, and uh, they're solving problems all the time. Uh, and and I wonder, uh, and I well, I guess my point is that maybe much like Rich Hill would want to talk to the thirty, you know, the twenty-five year old version of himself. Uh, I wish I could talk to an early version of myself and say something to the effect of, you know, learn a skill, dummy, learn at learn how to do a thing. Oh,
1: so th- there's something to be said of having practical skills, being able oh, yeah. to do something with your hands, which I, other than type, I really cannot do. Any, I can't accomplish many, <laughs> many, needs, plumbing or otherwise, with with my hands. Which is,
0: do you know how to? Do you know how to um, apply hydraulic cement? <laughs>
1: um, no, I do, I do not.
0: Do you know? <laughs> Wait, do you have a basement?
1: I do have a basement.
0: Is it a dry basement? Uh,
1: we have a French drain, so it stays relatively... Dis- you have a French drain? We have a French drain.
0: I believe the appropriate response is, ooh-la-la. La.
1: <laughs> but <laughs> uh, despite the shale makeup of western Pennsylvania, our basement is
0: it's, fr- it's pretty dry. Oh, do you? does that create um, high water tables or something like that? I
1: think it's the way the water filters. It's not absorbed easily, so it... Right. Uh, it can end up in your basement since it 's not- absor- absorbed by a more robust uh soil base I guess right yeah okay I'm not an ex- that's what I was told by a-, a fellow who came to look at maybe finishing our basement, which we elected not to
0: do yeah i wonder I wonder how that guy would do in a front office
1: <laughs> but but is your point that uh maybe we're talking too much about nice ideas and theory and not enough about practical matters.
0: And no, that, no, no. That's not my idea at all. Oh, my oh, my idea is that sometimes uh, trades – but what I've realized that I did not expect is that tradespeople trades people are geniuses. I mean this is – my, my point is that I'm a dummy, A. That's uh, hypothesis, A. And B is that <clears throat> if, we're, if the idea is we're looking, at, we're looking for wisdom where we might not have expected it, that's that's kind of part of it because if you're if your job is to solve problems every day like that the you're probably getting to ten thousand hours quickly right you are and my guess is that if if you're a plumber like when when George Turnbull came over to my house he's my plumber and he he looked at the problem like he had a pretty good idea of what it was and it's because he's seen so many he's seen so many other situations like it right. Right, so I don't know there's something uh, there's something in there. I'm not very good at uh sort of shaking these problems around and getting the answer to come out like the penny from a piggy bank you know i'm not very that's not my skill but i'm saying- I'm saying there's something there there's a there's a hint of something that tells me, oh man if i'm if I was going to solve a baseball problem, I'd want to have George Turnbull away, but I'd also not want him to think about it in terms of baseball. I'd want him to think about it in terms of a plumber. you know what I'm saying? Cause plumbing is his expertise. That's, that's what he knows how to do. And, uh, he, he can, he, the problems he solves through that vehicle are very exciting. So, and it, if, so I like I would want him there in the capacity of a plumb. Not to plumb the stadium is not what right, I mean.
1: More of an abstract, uh, Exactly. Yeah.
0: What if we view our team like a, like a, like a, like a what if we view our team like a house that now has a um a wet spot in the in the ceiling of the kitchen right in the ceiling of the kitchen, or I mean, if this was the Oakland days, it would be literal, but it would be um, but it, like uh yeah, there's a wet spot in the ceiling of the kitchen, what caused it, and then he'd say, well, here' are some ideas i don't know i I don't think that I'm helping very much, but I told you this would be a failure travis I told you that
1: it it has not been a failure
0: listen I'm not the one who's boarding planes with a with a with a screaming child like you
1: it's, it was her only recourse uh but i I know some of this maybe listeners think this is crazy this is a numbers game uh and maybe we are maybe I am crazy for suggesting this in a post, but I just know that when I've personally been in conversations with people who um uh, who have different backgrounds whatever. Yeah, I I will often walk away, viewing a problem differently, or having a different pers- having a different perspective added, can change a viewpoint on something or give you makes you consider something you have not considered. uh And there, I don't know. There's there's potential there, whether it's a plumber or el- whatever.
0: What about an elder, just an older person? If you just if you just get an older person off the street just let let him him or her sit around for a couple of days. I mean, older people have opinions, <laughs> some of them are racist <laughs>
1: <laughs> they do it.
0: usually teams have
1: a lot of old guys though around special advisors,
0: yeah, uh, that's true, yeah. but again, they're always thinking of problems in the context of their baseball careers, whereas I'm saying, I don't know there's an old there's an elderly gentleman at the cafe that I go to every day who discusses nothing but m g cars. do you know m g MG was a car model, I think it's a British car model I don't know what it stands for yeah. It it's for Morris Garage Yeah Yeah, I don't think they're made anymore but Maybe they are, but I don't think they are But they're they're a type of sports car Yeah, I, and it's all he talks about all the time
1: I, I have no idea
0: yeah. I don't know if that would be helpful either
1: I didn't know that didn't, a semi attached house With a duplex earlier either So my range of knowledge is perhaps very narrow
0: well, it's a good point because I had, I had forgotten that it was called a duplex. Because can I tell you why I called a it semi-detached? It's an, it's an affectation because that's what they call it in England. Ah. And so when I, when I decided what I, how I would call our house, I said, I prefer semi-detached because it sounds more European. And more. I'm a tool bag. <laughs> I was thinking yes. about it. Do you have any affectations, Travis? You seem to be um, affect-less generally.
1: That's a a good question. I might have to consider that and get back to you in our next taping.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, because I could tell you I have a number of them, and I I regret every single one of them. But, you know, if you you affect something for long enough, then it becomes habit. Uh,
1: Like, am I designed, am I trying to impress in any way? I'm not, I don't know. I'm trying to be straightforward and not flowery most of the time.
0: Yeah, when you were looking for, like, uh, uh, sometimes when people will adopt an affectation is when they are attempting to attract a mate. <laughs> did you did you go out of your way to seem attractive in a way that was not natural to you when you were trying to attract your mate?
1: I'm sure everyone does to a degree.
0: Yeah, but I'm asking Travis Sajic right now. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, was many, of?
1: this was many years ago, and I was a younger man, Carson. Uh <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I'm sure there. Well, I'll have to go downstairs and summon my wife and
0: ask her. Yeah, you well do some research on if that. I would like to know false pretenses. Yeah, I would like to know to know because but, but that's my point is and you see you're almost disconcertingly authentic. And um, it's—I think it's one of your least attractive qualities. I'm just,
1: I'm just an Ohio. I'm an, I'm an Ohioan.
0: Yeah, I guess that's true. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, there must be some sort of uh, there's some sort of yeah, like regional uh, regional values that would apply, yeah. right?
1: Modest. There's we're not an ostentatious people. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I'm, a, I'm an Ohioan. I think that's the best way to understand.
0: Yeah, I mean, the what's, first what's time going? I met my wife's parents. They're, they're 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 from uh, the Midwest. They're from Northern Michigan, and their distaste for me was palpable. (laughs) I mean, it was it was so obvious. I I very much enjoyed talking, Travis. Right. Right. I like being engaged with people. And my family is like I know I do not necessarily get along with my family either, but for different reasons. I mean, they they dislike me for other reasons. Is what I mean to say, but. But my family, though they're always talking, talking, talking. That's just how it is. Like it, if you're in a room with someone, you're definitely talking, and you're probably you're probably saying terrible something terrible to them, or something to annoy them on purpose. And and I just assume that's how most families uh, communicated. And when I behaved like that with my wife's family, there it was. It was uh, um, the first time I got into the car with with my uh, my now wife's uh, father. Uh, knowing that he was a big Michigan State fan, I said, um, I said something to the effect of, Oh, so you must be very excited for like the Michigan football game this week, this weekend. <laughs> I heard you're a big Michigan fan. And what I thought he would say is, you know, oh, you crackerjack of a guy or something like that, you know what I mean, you son of a bitch. I thought he would say something like you son of a bitch. Uh but instead he just he just made kind of like a growling noise under his <laughs> breath.
1: Uh, yeah. not a not a great start,
0: no, it was a miserable start, yeah. and it's it's basically been like that for fifteen years now.
1: I'm sure you've grown on them
0: incremental improvements, yeah, well, I have grown i guess I've grown on them
1: i'm, I'm sure they love you'm I'm, i I'm sure uh, yeah, I'm, I don't know
0: I think we're i think I think you've done what you need to do here i'm sorry, I'm sorry, I've kept you so long i I really enjoy talking to you, Travis. I enjoyed this, yeah, did you?
1: I wish I had a better. Uh, I, wish I, I wish I could better recount my first meetings with my wife, and how I tried to impress, failed yeah. to impress, what methods I used to impress.
0: Hmm. Uh, Do you feel like maybe you didn't? You, you there was nothing you did. You didn't try to perform any heroic acts in front of her. <laughs> you just trying to be just trying to be a nice guy. That that's we don't really have a
1: great meeting story of. Uh, Uh, Maybe I should just fabricate one Sure, yeah, you can lie cocktail parties Uh,
0: André Breton, uh, the the French uh, author, surrealist André Breton He lied about his birthday uh, for his entire life But he only lied about it by one day Which I think is somehow uh, Somehow I think is a more significant lie you know what I mean? Because it's it's a real lie. It, he knows. He knows. Um, Maybe he was worried about identity identity theft. I think that identity theft was. I think it was. It was very possible in in uh, the early 20th century. I think you could just go to someone and say, "I am Andre <laughs> Breton," and be like, "All right." <laughs> right. Because they, I don't know that identification. Um, was was wild. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. That he said that he was born, let's see, it says he was born February 19th. I think maybe he said he was born February 20th or February 18th. Or I could be thinking of someone else. Or maybe I just invented this and I'm lying to you about my birthday, which I've never told you, but I I plan to lie about it.
1: (laughs) Identity theft is real, man. Uh, yeah. and that's a way to protect yourself perhaps is
0: I invite someone to steal my identity <laughs> because what they will also steal is debt, <laughs> and i don't see how that's going to be any advantage to them yeah.
1: oh.
0: all right all right you' you're, you're done you're done you, you you did it you've fulfilled your obligation travis
1: thank you i'm, I'm glad yeah. i i'm glad i hope hopefully I met the challenges of the game of the podcast
0: <laughs> they were uh they were not well defined so you, you had a hard, t- you would have had a hard time really nailing them down, but uh, whatever you, you met all the challenges that were reasonable, reasonably given to you. <laughs> let's let's I'm, finish I'm this glad. up. You said you said th- I said thanks. You said you're welcome. I'll say uh, that has been Travis Sajic, and uh, probably an editor at Fangraphs.com. I assume some sort of editor. I am um, Carson Sestooli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio.